Book One, Chapter Thirteen of the Bostonians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Bostonians by Henry James. Chapter Thirteen. Mrs. Tarrant was delighted, as may be imagined, with her daughter's account of Miss Chancellor's interior, and the reception the girl had found there and Verena, for the next month, took her way very often to Charles Street. "'Just you be as nice to her as you know how,' Mrs. Tarrant had said to her, and she reflected with some complacency that her daughter did know. She knew how to do everything of that sort. It was not that Verena had been taught. That branch of the education of young ladies, which is known as manners and deportment, had not figured as a definite head in Miss Tarrant's curriculum. She had been told, indeed, that she must not lie, nor steal, but she had been told very little else about behavior. Her only great advantage, in short, had been the parental example. But her mother liked to think that she was quick and graceful, and she questioned her exhaustively as to the progress of this interesting episode. She didn't see why, as she said, it shouldn't be a permanent standby for Verena. In Mrs. Tarrant's meditations upon the girl's future, she had never thought of a fine marriage as a reward of effort. She would have deemed herself very immoral if she had endeavoured to capture for her child a rich husband. She had not, in fact, a very vivid sense of the existence of such agents of fate. All the rich men she had seen already had wives, and the unmarried men, who were generally very young, were distinguished from each other not so much by the figure of their income, which came little into question, as by the degree of their interest in regenerating ideas. She supposed Verena would marry someone, some day, and she hoped the personage would be connected with public life, which meant, for Mrs. Tarrant, that his name would be visible, in the lamplight, on a colored poster, in the doorway of Tremont Temple. But she was not eager about this vision, for the implications of matrimony were for the most part wanting in brightness. Consisting of a tired woman holding a baby over a furnace register that emitted lukewarm air. A real lovely friendship with the young woman who had, as Mrs. Tarrant expressed it, property, would occupy agreeably such an interval as might occur before Verena should meet her sterner fate. It would be a great thing for her to have a place to run into when she wanted a change, and there was no knowing but what it might end in her having two homes. For the idea of the home, like most American women of her quality, Mrs. Tarrant had an extreme reverence, and it was her candid faith that in all the vicissitudes of the past twenty years she had preserved the spirit of this institution. If it should exist in duplicate for Verena, the girl would be favored indeed. All this was as nothing, however, compared with the fact that Miss Chancellor seemed to think her young friend's gift was inspirational or at any rate, as Selah had so often said, quite unique. She couldn't make out very exactly, by Verena, what she thought, but if the way Miss Chancellor had taken hold of her didn't show that she believed she could rouse the people, Mrs. Tarrant didn't know what it showed. It was a satisfaction to her that Verena evidently responded freely. She didn't think anything of what she spent in car tickets, and indeed she had told her that Miss Chancellor wanted to stuff her pockets with them. At first she went in because her mother liked to have her, but now, evidently, she went because she was so much drawn. 
she expressed the highest admiration of her new friend. She said it took her a little while to see into her, but now that she did, well, she was perfectly splendid. When Verena wanted to admire she went ahead of everyone, and it was delightful to see how she was stimulated by the young lady in Charles Street. They thought everything of each other, that was very plain. You could scarcely tell which thought most. Each thought the other so noble, and Mrs. Tarrant had a faith that between them they would rouse the people. What Verena wanted was someone who would know how to handle her. Her father hadn't handled anything except the healing, up to this time, with real success. And perhaps Miss Chancellor would take hold better than some that made more of a profession. "'It's beautiful the way she draws you out,' Verena had said to her mother. "'There's something so searching that the first time I visited her it quite realized my idea of the Day of Judgment. But she seems to show all that's in herself at the same time, and then you see how lovely it is.' She's just as pure as she can live. You see if she is not when you know her. She's so noble herself that she makes you feel as if you wouldn't want to be less so. She doesn't care for anything but the elevation of our sex. If she can work a little toward that, it's all she asks. I can tell you, she kindles me. She does, mother, really. She doesn't care a speck what she wears, only to have an elegant parlor. Well, she has got that. It's a regular dreamlike place to sit. She's going to have a tree in, next week. She says she wants to see me sitting under a tree. I believe it's some oriental idea. It has lately been introduced in Paris. She doesn't like French ideas as a general thing, but she says this has more nature than most. She has got so many of her own that I shouldn't think she would require to borrow any. I'd sit in a forest to hear her bring some of them out. Verena went on, with characteristic raciness. She just quivers when she describes what our sex has been through. It's so interesting to me to hear what I have always felt. If she wasn't afraid of facing the public, she would go far ahead of me. But she doesn't want to speak herself. She only wants to call me out. Mother, if she doesn't attract attention to me, there isn't any attention to be attracted. She says I have got the gift of expression. It doesn't matter where it comes from. She says it's a great advantage to a movement to be personified in a bright young figure. Well, of course I'm young, and I feel bright enough when once I get started. She says my serenity, while exposed to the gaze of hundreds, is in itself a qualification. In fact, she seems to think my serenity is quite God-given. She hasn't got much of it herself. She's the most emotional woman I've met up to now. She wants to know how I can speak the way I do unless I feel, and of course I tell her I do feel so far as I realize. She seems to be realizing all the time. I never saw anyone that took so little rest. She says I ought to do something great, and she makes me feel as if I should. She says I ought to have a wide influence if I can obtain the ear of the public, and I say to her that if I do it it will be all her influence. Stella Tarrant looked at all this from a higher standpoint than his wife. At least such an attitude on his part was to be inferred from his increased solemnity. He committed himself to no precipitate elation at the idea of his daughter's being taken up by a patroness of movements who happened to have money. He looked at his child only from the point of view of the service she might render to humanity. To keep her ideal pointing in the right direction, to guide and animate her moral life, 
This was a duty more imperative for a parent so closely identified with revelations and panaceas than seeing that she formed profitable worldly connections. He was off, moreover, so much of the time that he could keep little account of her comings and goings, and he had an air of being but vaguely aware of whom Miss Chancellor, the object now of his wife's perpetual reference, might be. Verena's initial appearance in Boston, as he called her performance at Miss Birdseye's, had been a great success, and this reflection added, as I say, to his habitually sacerdotal expression. He looked like the priest of a religion that was passing through the stage of miracles. He carried his responsibility in the general elongation of his person, of his gestures. His hands were now always in the air, as if he were being photographed in postures. Of his words and sentences, as well as in his smiles, as noiseless as a patent hinge, and in the folds of his eternal waterproof. He was incapable of giving an off-hand answer or opinion on the simplest occasion, and his tone of high deliberation increased in proportion as the subject was trivial or domestic. If his wife asked him at dinner if the potatoes were good, he replied that they were strikingly fine. He used to speak of the newspaper as fine. He applied this term to objects the most dissimilar, and embarked on a parallel worthy of Plutarch in which he compared them with other specimens of the same vegetable. He produced, or would have liked to produce, the impression of looking above and beyond everything, of not caring for the immediate, of reckoning only with the long run. In reality he had one all-absorbing solicitude, the desire to get paragraphs put into the newspapers, paragraphs of which he had hitherto been the subject, but of which he was now to divide the glory with his daughter. The newspapers were his world, the richest expression, in his eyes, of human life. And, for him, if a diviner day was to come upon earth, it would be brought about by copious advertisement in the daily prints. He looked with longing for the moment when Verena should be advertised among the personals, and to his mind the supremely happy people were those, and there were a good many of them, of whom there was some journalistic mention every day of the year. Nothing less than this would really have satisfied Sela Tarrant. His ideal of bliss was to be as regularly and indispensably a component part of the newspaper as the title and date, or the list of fires, or the column of western jokes. The vision of that publicity haunted his dreams, and he would gladly have sacrificed to it the innermost sanctities of home. Human existence to him, indeed, was a huge publicity, in which the only fault was that it was sometimes not sufficiently effective. There had been a spiritualist paper of old which he used to pervade, but he could not persuade himself that through this medium his personality had attracted general attention, and moreover the sheet, as he said, was played out anyway. Success was not success so long as his daughter's physique, the rumor of her engagement, were not included in the jottings, with the certainty of being extensively copied. The account of her exploits in the West had not made their way to the seaboard with the promptitude that he had looked for. The reason of this being, he supposed, that the few addresses she had made had not been lectures, announced in advance, to which tickets had been sold, but incidents of abrupt occurrence, of certain multitudinous meetings, where there had been other performers better known to fame. They had brought in no money, 
they had been delivered only for the good of the cause. If it could only be known that she spoke for nothing, that might deepen the reverberation. The only trouble was that her speaking for nothing was not the way to remind him that he had a remunerative daughter. It was not the way to stand out so very much either, Selaterin felt, for there were plenty of others that knew how to make as little money as she would. To speak, that was the one thing that most people were willing to do for nothing. It was not a line in which it was easy to appear conspicuously disinterested. Disinterestedness, too, was incompatible with receipts, and receipts were what Selah Tarrant was, in his own parlance, after. He wished to bring about the day when they would flow in freely. The reader perhaps sees the gesture with which, in his colloquies with himself, he accompanied this mental image. It seemed to him at present that the fruitful time was not far off. It had been brought appreciably nearer by that fortunate evening at Miss Bird's eyes. If Mrs. Farrander could be induced to write an open letter about Verena, that would do more than anything else. Sela was not remarkable for delicacy of perception, but he knew the world he lived in well enough to be aware that Mrs. Farrander was liable to rear up, as they used to say down in Pennsylvania, where he lived before he began to peddle lead pencils. She wouldn't always take things as you might expect, and if it didn't meet her views to pay a public tribute to Verena, there wasn't any way known to Terence's ingenious mind of getting round her. If it was a question of a favor from Mrs. Farrander, you just had to wait for it, as you would for a rise in the thermometer. He had told Miss Birdseye what he would like, and she seemed to think, from the way their celebrated friend had been affected, that the idea might take her some day of just letting the public know all she had felt. She was off somewhere now, since that evening, but Miss Birdseye had an idea that when she was back in Roxbury she would send for Verena and give her a few points. Meanwhile, at any rate, Selah was sure he had a card. He felt there was money in the air. It might already be said there were receipts from Charles Street. That rich, peculiar young woman seemed to want to lavish herself. He pretended, as I have intimated, not to notice this, but he never saw so much as when he had his eyes fixed on the cornice. He had no doubt that if he should make up his mind to take a hall some night, she would tell him where the bill might be sent. That was what he was thinking of now, whether he had better take the hall right away, so that Verena might leap at a bound into renown, or wait till she had made a few more appearances in private, so that curiosity might be worked up. These meditations accompanied him in his multifarious wanderings through the streets and the suburbs of the New England capital. As I have also mentioned, he was absent for hours, long periods during which Mrs. Tarrant, sustaining nature with a hard-boiled egg and a doughnut, wondered how in the world he stayed his stomach. He never wanted anything but a piece of pie when he came in. The only thing about which he was particular was that it should be served up hot. She had a private conviction that he partook, at the houses of his lady patients, of little lunches. She applied this term to any episodical repast at any hour of the twenty-four. It is but fair to add that once, when she betrayed her suspicion, Selah remarked that the only refreshment he ever wanted was the sense that he was doing some good. This effort with him had many forms. It involved, among other things, a perpetual perambulation of the streets, a haunting of horse-cars, 
railway stations, shops that were selling off. But the places that knew him best were the offices of the newspapers and the vestibules of the hotels, the big marble-paved chambers of informal reunion, which offered to the streets, through high glass plates, the side of the American citizen suspended by his heels. Here, amid the piled-up luggage, the convenient spittoons, the elbowing loungers, the disconsolate guests, the truculent Irish porters, the rows of shaggy-backed men in strange hats, writing letters at a table inlaid with advertisements, Sailor Tarrant made innumerable contemplative stations. He could not have told you, at any particular moment, what he was doing. He only had a general sense that such places were national nerve centers, and that the more one looked in, the more one was on the spot. The penetralia of the daily press were, however, still more fascinating, and the fact that they were less accessible, that here he found barriers in his path, only added to the zest of forcing an entrance. He abounded in pretexts. He even sometimes brought contributions. He was persistent and penetrating. He was known as the irrepressible Tarrant. He hung about, sat too long, took up the time of busy people, edged into the printing rooms when he had been eliminated from the office, talked with the compositors till they set up his remarks by mistake, and to the newsboys when the compositors had turned their backs. He was always trying to find out what was going in. He would have liked to go in himself, bodily, and failing in this, he hoped to get advertisements inserted gratis. The wish of his soul was that he might be interviewed, that made him hover at the editorial elbow. Once he had thought he had been, and the heading, five or six deep, danced for days before his eyes, but the report never appeared. He expected his revenge for this the day after Verena should have burst forth. He saw the attitude in which he should receive the emissaries who had come after his daughter. End of Book One, Chapter Thirteen Recording by Roxana Nazari